Hey, before we start, we want to let you all know that we're doing another live show. It's going to be on Wednesday, March 20th at 7 p.m. at the Lee Strasberg Theater in West Hollywood. We're going to have a casting panel where we're going to speak to TV, film, and commercial casting directors about how to get great actors into your work. We'll cover audition techniques from both director and actor sides and learn what directors can do to find the perfect actors for their projects. And we're also going to have refreshments and lots of schmoozing time. Tickets are free for any patron tier on Patreon. Or it's just five bucks on Eventbrite. But seating is limited, so make sure you get your tickets. Check it out at live.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 347th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Ben Steer. Thanks, Ben. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlo. Today we've got Peter Polk on the show. He's a producer who's done a ton of movies, mostly in the horror genre. The horror and thriller is kind of his wheelhouse. There's a lot of heavy hitters on this list. You know, we're talking the recent hit Pearl and X, all those Ty West movies out there. Yeah, Peter has three movies that came out this year, X and Pearl from Ty West. And there's already a third one coming out that A24 is making that... uh, it's very exciting. Either X or Pearl, or maybe both of them have been endorsed on this podcast before as movies you must see. And he has another movie called Dear Zoe starring Sadie Sink from Stranger Things, which also came out this year. Though that one's not scary. Bit of a curveball there. And he's done a ton of stuff. He worked on VHS, the anthology, horror anthology uh, movie. And he uh, did The House of the Devil, a bunch of awesome movies. He knows a ton about making movies from the $150,000 to the multi-million dollar ones. And um, we have a real fun talk. We talk about how he got started, why he chose producing instead of directing, you know, a lot of the nuts and bolts. The second half is probably my favorite part of the interview where we really talk about what he looks for in terms of Mm -hmm. making a movie, what kind of filmmaker, what's important to him. And yeah, you know what I loved about this conversation with Peter, in addition to all of the things you just mentioned, is like there is this vibe that, I'm always relieved by where you see someone's resume and you think, oh man, they've made so many awesome things. They're this hotshot producer. And then you're like, oh, you're just like all of the other filmmakers that we talked to and hang out with and came up with the types of people that are just like us, basically. So it was really cool to talk to Peter and like just learn his story, see that trajectory and also get all of those little nuggets of, you know, hard earned wisdom in the world of indie filmmaking that he's accrued over the last decade. Well, it's a pretty long conversation, so we're going to hop into it. But uh, Matt and I have a lot of very exciting things going on. Can't wait to talk more about it. So we will tell you post-Thanksgiving, the day this episode comes out. Before we hop into our conversation with Peter Polk, uh, I'd like to remind you all about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Just Shoot a Pod is the place where you can throw us a buck or two to show your support. Keep our editor Noah in the green. He's making money, living his life, making movies, doing that indie hustle. Uh, also supporting all of our server fees and all that stuff. It's that time of the year where actually all of those fees are kicking in. Got charged for my Dropbox annual subscription. I was like, oh, that's right. This ain't cheap. Patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. Uh, for 20 bucks, you'll get a hat. It's very cool. Keeps your head warm and in the shade, depending on what part of the world you're in. That might be one part might be more beneficial than the other. Did I tell you that I just wore it on set recently and like the AD is like, ooh, I got to get that hat. Anyway, patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. Go there. 
your life will be changed for the worst. You'll be a dollar or two or 15. Poorer every month, and Matt and I will be very happy. Well, without any further delay, let's hop into our conversation with Peter Polk. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, we are here with Peter Polk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Welcome, Peter. Peter, you are an executive producer, and I want to talk about all of your projects, but I want to go back a little bit earlier to maybe the middle of your career, the beginning middle. I noticed an awful lot of post-credits, an unusual number of post-credits for a producer and an EP in particular. So I was curious, tell us a little bit about your filmmaking background, and then we can kind of work into the evolution of you becoming an EP. I went to film school in New York, School of Visual Arts, and at SVA, I was a directing major. And so, and SVA is like sort of known for its sort of like, I think, early access to like the equipment. Gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, and I was already like a, you know, like a computer person, you know, I was into computers and, uh, you know, you know, savvy with electronics and that kind of stuff. So thinking about that, talking about that, um, and, uh, yeah, so I always gravitated to like, you know, to the cameras and then, Mm -hmm. and then ultimately like, you know, all the, you know, editorial software, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know Avid, you know, Premiere and like went through like, uh, the evolution of like digital video. So I was around for all that. Yeah. So then when cut to like me becoming a producer, um, I, I, I was producing in New York on, on a lot of like no budget, low budget type of stuff, like micro. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so like, you know, we didn't have a lot of, you know, resources. And so like, I ended up wearing a lot of hats and uh, uh, I kind of de facto fell into some assistant editing work uh, and then generally was the post supervisor, whether I took the credit, you know, or not. You're saying you were just smart, handy, capable, but producing was kind of always the the main thing you were doing, but not unlike being a good line producer or a great chef or whatever else when you're er- like early in your producing <laughs> career, you end up kind of filling those gaps. In. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's how post kind of yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right. I mean, I, I think, you know, in film school, you're, you know, you, you're just sent off to like write and go direct. And then you realize like, well, who's producing? And then so that was something that like I recognized in film school. I'm like, oh, you need a producer. And so uh, coming out of film school, that was sort of the direction I was like, sort of landing. It was like, oh, like you can't direct unless you have an environment to direct in. And someone has to create mm-hmm. that space. Um, and so like, you know, I kind of like took that on. And, um, and yeah, and I'm also a line producer because of that. Um, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, so you're a popular guy with any director that knew what they would light ahead for them. You know what I mean? Like, like to have a career, I think you have to have a handful of great producers, um, and relationships with those people. So were you producing kind of out of the gate basically, or, or did it take a, a beat I mean, you know, well? it, took, it took a little bit of beat just to get that confidence, you know, but I, you know, mm-hmm. for, like, you know, to be honest, early, uh, you know, I had, um, 
you know, love movies uh, in high school, really, my love for movies kind of grew and grew. And that's when you sort of start thinking about, well, what are you going to do with your life? You know, uh, where do you want to go to college? And so I, um, I, I really just started to, to kind of think about, you know, movie making and, if that, you know, and it was a dream sort of like, you know, and I didn't, my parents, uh, certainly not in the industry. We certainly didn't know anyone in the industry. But it was one of those things where it's just like uh, I think um, I'm first uh, generation here, and uh, kind of grew up in New York, and uh, with this idea of like you know this country, you know you know land of opportunity, land of freedom, you can do what you want. Uh, Got to work hard for it, and so I just kind of took that mentality and that approach. But like you know when I kind of wanted to learn more about filmmaking, you know got books, started doing research, and uh, it led me to taking this uh, two day like film school as a junior in high school um and this guy Dov simmons and i think his course is still out there uh teaches like filmmaking in in what at the time it was like 38 checks that you write to make a movie and like it was like a crash course in like how to line how to like do a budget there was this one video tech class that actually taught me so much but i couldn't get into it until like my senior year that's like video editing right and you're editing on like uh yeah it was svhs mm-hmm. you know deck deck but um there's there's the computer that like you get to book at like in hour increments to like learn editing yeah. on. Right? But the teacher, yeah. you know, it was like, yeah, Mr. Clive was really great at breaking down the technical stuff, like on the video t- track, you know, and like, you know, what's mm-hmm. on there. But anyhow, I find out I probably through like Filmmaker Magazine or something like that. This like this course is, you know, and I have to like, you know, convince my parents that like this is, you know, a, a worthwhile investment while we only lived like. Uh, 45 minutes away out just outside of Manhattan. I remember like they agreed to like, you know, pay for the course and, uh, but then they assisted that they drive me in, you know, they weren't going to let me just mm-hmm. take the sub, the, the, the long railroad into the city. And then, you know, we got to find this place. So, you know, I get in there and it's like, clearly I'm like the youngest person in this classroom of adults, you know, who are, who have paid to two day crash course. Um, and the first day is focused on like, you know, putting the project together in production and then the second day is a little bit more geared towards like how now that you've made this movie, how do you like get it out there and sell it? Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just so excited to learn more about film production. But yeah, his approach was like, yeah, it was like 38 checks. You know, if you've seen a film budget, you know, like above the line, below the line, he broke that down. And it was just like, here are the checks. And it was like, yeah, like, you know, your actors, your DP, you know, and, and, and mm-hmm. the department heads that you just like, these are the people that you need to have. You know, and one of the people certainly I believe was like, yeah, like a line producer, a PM. But what what you know, I got out of all that was like, oh, this is very practical, and uh, you know, it just gave me some confidence. Like, oh, I can do this. Look what I just learned in a day. I wonder if some of what you learned taught you what producing is. Do you know what I mean? Like, it sounds like it's 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 like a lot of like that's a thing that doesn't really become apparent to most ambitious young film students for kind of a while do you know what i mean like like honestly maybe like a couple years into film school you kind of realize like oh my project is so big that i'm gonna need someone to help that's not just holding a camera or moving lights around do you know what i mean 100 percent. but also writing checks is like not sexy, right? Like when you first start, you're like, sure. How do I get yeah, that yeah. shot? What light do I get? How do I get an actor to do mm-hmm. this? Like, how do I move mm-hmm. the camera? I feel like camera movements like kind of like 
the first thing you get excited about, right? Yeah, yeah. How do I make it look cool? You never think about like, and like, yeah, UPM or anything like. So yeah, you took a crash course in in line producing, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Like step one, here are the checks you need to write. That's like a funny. Do you? I wonder if that maybe influenced your trajectory more than you realize. You know what I mean? Like to have that. Yeah, the business side. I don't know. That's kind of it's mind it's mind blowing to me. <laughs> It was incredibly, you know, invaluable. And, and like, you know, and I also, you know, at this point was already um, entrepreneurial, I think, in, mm-hmm. in high school, like with like, you know, different ideas for different types of businesses and companies. And uh, uh, I do like to mention I was like in this club called Future Business Leaders of America, FBLA. Mm-hmm. Some Mm-hmm. Some people, you know, are familiar with that organization, but it was yeah, it's kind of like a big national thing, right? It's like yeah, it's like being a math leader yes, or something. Exactly, like there's, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. You compete in like sort of business acumen stuff, and and I just mm-hmm. joined the club. My friend invited me to join the club. I just joined the club essentially just to uh, go on a free trip. That was that was the uh, you know you know incentivized me, but I competed in like things like like computer applications, which was essentially like Microsoft Office, and uh, mm-hmm. you know didn't yeah, really prepare. Just, you know, yeah, right. It was like make this letterhead, <laughs> make this spreadsheet, and like you know, like awesome. just you know set the right justification and like paperclip to get it. Get out of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> clippy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I competed on both the you know so the local level, and then we went to states competition, and then later I went to nationals, and so. Um, yeah, I think all this stuff was like, you know, kind of informing me of like, all right, you know, business. And I started an eBay business as, you know, and that took me into college. And so this, you know, sort of business side of me, um, was something I just like kind of felt was natural. So, uh, but I was still kind of like thinking as a director, I was like, I want to go, you know, into like, you know, mm-hmm. how do I make movies? And then film school itself was like interesting because yeah, then you're just like, all right, cool. You're here now write and direct. And it was like, you know, we had to churn them out really quickly. But, you know, the execution of production was like challenging because you didn't have that like set producer. And then they didn't have anyone who was uh, sort of focused on that because they didn't have a producing track at the time. So now the school's evolved and SVD mm-hmm. certainly has uh, mm-hmm. producing classes and it teaches you um, what that means. But, it, uh, you know, as you were saying earlier, Matt, like, yeah, I didn't know what that really meant still while trying to make, you know, my thesis film. And that's when I was like, oh, I picked on something that's like bigger than me. And uh, this is hard. And so, you know, you need someone who that understands what it is, you know, to run. A, yeah, I could use some help in a lot of different ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So fast forward from those early realizations in, in film school into let's talk about VHS 2012. VHS is like a pretty phenomenally successful horror anthology, right? It was kind of like a perfect prototype for indie DIY horror filmmaking plus the anthology model. So you kind of you can get a bunch of different pods of filmmakers to all bust their asses for like a weekend plus and then have a movie at the end of it that turns into a giant franchise and they're still making them today. So talk to us about VHS. How did you become... Where where were you in your career when that was kind of first happening for you? So essentially, VHS for from my perspective, it was different. Where was I career wise? I think I've done several movies with already. Well, certainly with Ty. Wait, so how did you team up with Ty West? I guess that that may be interesting. Yeah, that's probably the better question. Though. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, um, Ty was also at SVA, and so we met like our freshman year. We all had to take film history with Gene Davis, um, our 
history professor and uh, in his theater. And, um, and so that was the one class that you could saw everyone in your year um, in. And mm. so, you know, I saw Ty and then we had a, a mutual friend uh, who was also going to SDA. So freshman year, you're in like, you know, these classes with the same group of people and you move from like, you know, the, you know, block to block, but you're in the same group. Um, but there's other blocks. And so that was, you know, film history was the only class where you got to see all the other blocks, you know, like, you know, because in film was one of the bigger mm-hmm. majors at, at School of Visual Arts. So um, uh, Sean Reed um is was you know uh, another you know friend and 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 student that i you know befriended at sva who who later ends up in a lot of our early you know taiwa shorts as well as the roost um trigger man and uh but but sean was in ty's block and so sean kind of bridged us and then i would see ty like late uh after hours in the editing lab which was like the time Mm -hmm uh steenbecks like a room full of steenbecks and mm-hmm. it's like you know and mm-hmm. you know i'm like what 18 years old you know splicing 16 millimeter it's awesome this is like you know the coolest thing and then yeah. just meeting feels real right yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah meeting other you know people who are just as excited about doing you know the work and uh and then at that point you know let's just kind of just chatting with everybody trying to you know meet people and so yeah i saw ty working on his stuff i was working on my stuff and um yeah, it was like it was then. And then, yeah, I think through the course of the next, you know, four years or there, ultimately, you know, we're helping uh, each other, you know, uh, sort of review cuts and that kind of stuff, you know. And then later, Ty's, you know, inviting me to like, you know, go help, you know, be on his crew, right? Go help him kind mm-hmm. of do stuff. And uh, so that's where it started, you know. We just- Did you feel like, I mean, so obviously he's had some, you know, big, you know, he's part of VHS and had some, very like popular movies, you know, he has like a cult following. Um, we've had someone on the podcast actually recommend Pearl as like one of their unpaid endorsements of a movie that you EP'd. Do you feel like back then you, he seemed like extra talented mm. relative to the other students or were you guys all just kind of like figuring it out by making bad short <laughs> films? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, as I, you know, I certainly, what I certainly recognized right away was like, as you know, and I would never claim myself to be like well watched, but like Ty was certainly well watched, and, and, mm-hmm. and like uh, he had seen everything. Yeah, and it was very like you know evident that I was like oh like I've seen nothing in comparison. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, a lot of and I my taste was like more was broader. You know, for like Hollywood and studio movies, like I you know I right. just you love Back to the Future. Sure. Yeah. 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 You could go go to the blockbuster, basically, blockbuster, and the Hollywood yeah, video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and uh, <laughs> sure. try to find a cool cover, right? And then yeah, yeah. check it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, so meeting Ty, and then you know he introduced me to like these you know other filmmakers that I you know uh, maybe I was aware of their movies, but not really aware. And so, so he was like because he grew up in 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 Wilmington, Delaware, where he had like a not the, you know I'm sure there was blockbuster Hollywood video there, but he was going to like uh you know a mom and pop video shop that was like uh, mm-hmm, you know, curated mm-hmm. and so he had that sort of education you know of like yeah um yeah i i find every once in a while you'll find a, a, a in film school like a kid who there was just there was nothing in their town and so they learned to dig deeper than like i grew up in the suburbs we, we had both a hollywood video and a blockbuster so you could walk across the street and like, you know, maybe I was just lazy, but like, I, I think that, um, 
yeah, there's something to like when somebody has to really, really dig, they get better at it and they kind of like push themselves to find even harder to find things. I, for sure. I feel like nowadays, I mean, that that whole equation has changed so much because people can basically see any movie they want. And but also yeah. they're probably very busy with like TikTok and stuff, you know, like so on one hand, they have all the access. But on the other hand, like I wonder what percentage of like, you know, the 18, 19, 20 year olds mm-hmm. are even like watching movies right now, you know, like beyond yeah. the big blockbusters. Yeah. Um, because there's so much other stuff to feast your eyes on, you know, that's easier to look at quickly. Keeps me up at night. Or <laughs> but I, I don't know. It's Sometimes true. I'm like, is that job security? Are we going to be the only people that have seen movies? So Ty was very well watched. You guys started teaming up together. And then, so you're in film school. You're there to be a filmmaker, obviously. At what point are you like, oh, shoot, you know, I can work on more films and collaborate with other people. And I don't necessarily have to be the director. You're, you pick a major early. So I was, uh, I was directing. And I, I, you know, I came up and I thought, you know, because, you know, when I was making films in high school on like digital aid stuff, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the camera operator. I'm like the DP, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, it's like. So I thought I would go down that route. And then I remember taking a lighting class and then be like, oh, the way they talk about lighting is just not the way that I want to talk about lighting. And it was so different. And um, and so it just kind of steered me, you know, I'm like, well, maybe like, you know, and then ultimately I came to realize like, oh, I like being in control. And so I like, think like after, you know, get, getting out of SVA, feeling like, so like somewhat burned out on like, you know, oh man, making my thesis film, like why, why did I pick something so ambitious? Um, and what my thesis film was a, uh, it was called Long Island Love Story. And it was like a, uh, like probably a 20 minute uh, musical, basically. Uh, that was like mm-hmm. two solos and a, and a duet, no dancing, light choreography. And it was just, you know, set in Long Island, but essentially like, you know, two people from different worlds, uh, come, you know, meeting on circumstance and then like kind of falling for each other. Just and my thesis advisor was just like, yeah, it sounds great, go do it, and I'm, I'm, you know, so went off and did that. But then the production of it was like, oh my god, I don't, I don't know anything about how to create this environment. It was, it was rough, mm-hmm. tough, and mm-hmm. um, and maybe I just wasn't, you know, exposed at that point to a lot of professional sets to like to actually know what it's supposed to be like. So I came out of film school, you know, it was PAing, uh, trying to get a PA job, which was difficult because like. It's not like the entry level job that you that you know people kind of lead you to believe that it is. I mean, like you know. Yeah. Uh, in what ways is it not an entry level job? Well, like you know, when you, PA production assistants are like the heart of any set, and you know, if you're on a feature set, like you know, you really want like the stronger, more experienced PAs because they are the eyes and ears of production. You know, walkie lingo, that kind of stuff. Like you know, while everyone is going to like essentially learn on the job, mm-hmm. you know, like you know, time is money. And you want to be efficient and like, there's not always that opportunity to be teaching when, you know, the shoot's happening. Not every, you know, AD, second AD, you know, is going to like give you that time of day to go, all right, here's the deal. Or even a key PA to like explain what's up, Mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, if you're given the opportunity, you know, um, you know, obviously you want to learn. In New York now, there's like a uh, made in New York, like PA program where it's like some kind of a training mm-hmm. and then the PAs are, you know, kind of like get that seal and you can bring them in and they're more experienced. I think we have a, a PA boot camp they call it out here and they kind of help place people and things as well. Yeah. And that, I think that you kind of just kind of gives them a little bit more foundation, basically. So what I'm hearing, though, this is really fascinating. You've AD'd, you PA'd, 
You've got a strong background in post. So it sounds to me like in a lot of ways, you come from producing really from this kind of place of understanding a lot of the different elements and what, what people need, you know, um, how, how did those different jobs influence your approach to producing? After SVA, Ty got financing from Larry Fessen's company, Glasslight Picks in New York. Uh, to make a feature mm-hmm. right out of school called The Roost. And so mm-hmm. we... And how did he get the financing? Like um, off of his short films or something? Or so so or? Ty had... Uh, so like Ty had Kelly Reichert as a first-year film teacher. Uh, Kelly Reichert is a, nice. a very, you know, esteemed and, and, and uh, talented filmmaker. And she shared an office uh, at one point with uh, Larry Fessenden, another East Village filmmaker mm-hmm. who had a company called Glass Eye Picks. And, um, and Ty was familiar with Larry's movies, um, Habit, uh, Wendigo, and, um, mm-hmm. and Larry couldn't make it in to talk, to speak to a class. So Ty had asked Kelly to like, you know, would, would she like connect him, you know, with, with Larry? And, and then like next, you know, Larry, like Ty is interning for Larry and, and, and kind of like being around, you know, someone who has made some films. And I think that's what film school was for us. SDA was like kind of pride itself on having like working professionals as your professors. That was the whole like kind of push. And so, um, and, and, and essentially like as we were all kind of finishing up our thesis films and and preparing to kind of graduate, um, you know, uh, SVA, um, I, you know, Ty always tells a story where it's like, you know, he had a conversation with Larry about like next steps, you know, do we, uh, do I just pull a bunch of money and make a, like a, you know, a big time short film? Um, and, you know, even though like, you know, we had just made a thesis film individually and, um, and Larry's response was like, what separates you from a sneaky movie? Like, you know, just a little bit of like money, some resources. Um, and, and essentially like, yeah, that was it. It was just some money. And so, you know, Larry had Ty pitch a couple ideas and then essentially kind of, uh, you know, uh, would, you know, kind of hear him out and say, what else you got? What else you got? And then Ty made up something about like a group of, um, friends going to a wedding and then car breaks down and they're stuck on the side of the road and they need help. They go to, uh, they walk over to a nearby, uh, farm, um, and then end up waking, uh, awaking a roost of bats, killer bats. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's the one that Larry kind of like jived with. Larry was a, into, into horror, into genre. And you sold me with killer bats. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. And then, um, and then I remember, yeah, like, so, so that was it. I mean, so we graduated in May of 03 and then we're in on set in October. Really. Like, wait, and how much that, money I mean, did you, did you guys have to make that? Um, well, I mean, it seemed like we had, well, we, yeah, I mean that, that number was always so nebulous. Cause it's like, you know, it's one of those things mm-hmm. like, you know, we don't know, but we were shooting on, uh, on film. Peter, is that your way of telling us you didn't get paid? Oh yeah. 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 I'm, I, I, that's, <laughs> yeah. I don't think any of us got paid. Um, but I mean, are we talking yeah, like, like $50,000 or like $500,000? Well, like I mean, I, I, yeah, so at the end of the day, I think like the, the movie itself in total through finish and everything, I think maybe cost mm-hmm. like a hundred and fifty K or something like, I think. Oh, yeah. that's it. With yeah. visual effects and everything. Everything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But you know, it helps to have a bunch yeah, of friends yeah. who are willing to kind of like, Hey, like, let's come on board and let's, let's do this. So Eric Robbins, that halo of like, you guys have just graduated. You don't know what you're going to do with your life. Someone says, Hey, do you want to go make a movie? Even though you're not getting paid? 
it's like kind of not an easy yes because like who knows like maybe you're living with your parents maybe you've got a little bit of money saved maybe not but like i i am jealous of that that little sunset time where people are just kind of ready to jump onto that that project yeah yeah and that's yeah that's what it was it was uh, i was just saying like eric robbins also went to sva with us was our was our dp he had been already filming a bunch of like i think it's like doing it was working commercials music videos he mm-hmm. bought his own uh, Aton A Minima camera at the time, mm-hmm. um, and, can, mm-hmm. and and brought that along to to to, to, to shoot this movie. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a couple, couple other you know friends, and then yeah, like I said earlier, Sean Reed got you know he's casted to be in the movie. He had already been in in, in a couple of Ty's shorts, so you know for us it was exciting to like okay let's let's do it. Um, and uh, um, I forget it was probably only you know, probably like two and a half, three weeks, maybe total of, of, of days. You know, I probably have to like go back and look it up. But um, I was there to assist the producer, essentially, like, and Susan Lieber was mm-hmm. hired by Larry to then like go and produce the movie, be on the ground. Um, we ended up filming just outside of like uh, Wilmington, Delaware, where Ty's from. But we went into like, I think, Kennedy Square, Pennsylvania. Like the border is so close, and that's where we filmed the movie on the farm. And so I was just soaking up everything I could from Susan um, and trying to learn. And then I think I, I, you know, ended up like, and she was teaching at NYU at the time. So she like basically once it was going, uh, just left me like, you know, I think a couple of like, here's some blank checks, you know, here's some petty cash, and just like, just make mm-hmm. sure everything's like, here's thirty eight blank checks. <laughs> that's now right. You can make a movie. And, you know, so I'm doing everything from like, yeah, PAing, you know, doing, having to go out and like buy uh, stuff for the ha- the crew house, um, mm-hmm. we have, you know, but there's an AD running the shoot and, you know, and I'm just trying to anticipate like the next day's needs, but we're pretty, pretty much at one location for this, this, uh, this movie, this, like this farm. So, uh, and we're on nights, you know, so it's, you know, when the mm-hmm. world is like, you know, when we're, we're, the crew is sleeping, you know, I'm out there kind of like running around grabbing, you know, what we need to make sure that sustain ourselves and so but yeah i was just learning what i could from susan and um and then you know got to kind of see the movie like and get the movie into into avid and and like yeah like we were we were bringing the film back to new york to process the film and then they transferred in and got into so i think i I remember setting up ty for, for editorial and then that was sort of it and then the movie like got finished several months later and then kind of like had its journey on the film festival circuit um and it was like uh, a few years later so at that point ty was hired to then write the house of the devil he reached out to me and said hey we're gonna make a, a you know another movie a real movie i said okay great and we were excited to kind of do that but it didn't happen right away the financing didn't come together and so at this point he had already done ty had done all these you know kind of film festivals and um and this is when i, feel, I felt like dv was really making uh uh, uh, an emergence onto the, you know, into the world mm-hmm. as far as a maybe a a, a viable sh- you know shooting format. This could be real. It was like uh, twenty one days later had come out, and like I feel like the, the David Lynch did a movie on DV, and you know it was kind of like maybe this is going to be cool and viable, right? Yeah. And so and th- and and yeah. so then yeah, Ty decided, um, yeah, let's uh, let's just go out and shoot a movie instead of like you know, continue to wait, you know, because it'd been several mm-hmm. years since he had directed The Roost. And so 
um, and meeting, you know, other filmmakers like Joe Swanberg and seeing what Joe was doing, sure. you know, and so that uh, that drove us to go make Trigger Man, which, um, you know, Ty had pitched to Larry once again and said, Larry, you know, hey, can we just get like, I don't know, like 10 grand to go make a movie? And, you know, and that was essentially like what it was. Did Larry like, make his money back on The Roost? Yes. Yes. The oh, Roost really? went. So The Roost premiered at South by Southwest and and then was bought before it premiered just a few months later at like the L.A. Film Festival. Um, oh, wow. And uh, yeah. And then, then The Roost took tie to like Sitges uh, just outside of um, the Sitges Film Festival, which is like an incredible um, film festival for like sci-fi fantasy and horror and genre and uh i know mm-hmm. that you know like you meet a lot of great you know kind of like-minded filmmakers there um and uh but but yeah i mean so the Rus sold to let me remember now it was like we got a little theatrical deal um and then like you know and then ultimately and home video um i think showtime like took it out for uh for tv mm-hmm. and stuff yeah yeah, it's interesting because this is 2005. This is like Lionsgate after dark film fest like territory, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, yeah, that was a time when you could make actually make like a decent living making genre films, yeah, and getting theatrical like little theatrical releases, and then doing like really well on video and stuff. Well, that was the other thing is like the home video market of DVDs was really like in full effect. It was still going. I mean, yeah, you yeah. could go to any yeah. like you know you know big box retailers and and see like you know every title, like, you know, 50 to a hundred copies of them there, you know, and, and, you know, it was just like, it was stocked. Yeah. And are you, so like you're producing for Ty, you're also producing for other people at the same time. And like, is there like, is your relationship with him? Like, obviously you're, you still have just did things with him very recently. So it's like a long, you know, over 15 years, you guys have been making movies together. Like how can you tell us a little bit about that relationship? Because we we talk a lot on the podcast about like, you know, directors and DPs, directors and producers and and writers and like mm-hmm. how that stuff, you know, a lot of times someone's like, oh, well, now we got a studio behind us. So we got to work with this producer, you know, or we got mm-hmm. like, how, how does that track? Like, how you know, why yeah, do you keep think- working with him and why does he keep working with you? You know, I mean, it's, 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 uh, yeah. I mean, I think there was like trust that was built, you know, early in our relationship of, you know, of, of trust in, in getting the work done. Um, and, uh, for a long time, yeah, it was like, I would deal with the stuff that, you know, Ty really didn't want to deal with, you know, it's like the you know, paperwork and that kind of stuff. And like, and over time the movies grow and our team grew and, you know, Ty continues to work with the same collaborators because it's like, it's sort of that shorthand and that trust in, um, but, uh, you know, everyone, as we've gotten older, everybody is at different places in their lives, you know? And so, um, but yeah, I mean, the X and Pearl mark, I think my ninth and 10th collaboration with Ty and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and he, the, the, before X, um, the last movie we did together was, uh, this revenge Western called in a Valley of violence that stars, uh, Ethan Hawke and uh, John Travolta, um, which is an incredible cast. Um, and, at, you know, on that movie, it wasn't horror. So, it was like, Ty kind of, like, felt a little, like, kind of, like, he wanted to just do something different. And um, and he joined, uh, yeah, like, we were DGA on that movie. So, he, he's, you know, uh, joins the guild. And that, you know, opens him up to uh, a world of, of a different opportunity in directing and television. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, kind of went off to do that for a number of years. You know, for Ty, he's always just kind of driven by 
um, you know, strong ideas for what he wants to make, you know, and when he has a really strong idea, um, he's into it, he'll share it. And then, you know, and, you know, more times than not, they're, they're great ideas. And so that sort of back and forth of like, oh, that's awesome. That's good. And you get excited. And I think his superpower is like his ability to kind of sit down and commit to like, to writing that script in a short amount of time. That is a, an interesting superpower for sure to be, to go from like, Hey, I think this is cool to like, here, let's go make it. Here's your blueprint. Um, if you can do that quickly, then, you know, well, yeah, yes. You've made 10 movies together with your buddies from <laughs> film know. school. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. For a long time, we would just joke. It's just, Oh, it's just kids making movies. I mean, that's, that's what we kind of like saw ourselves as, um, were you involved in getting that cast together in the Valley of Violence, like Ethan Hawke uh, and John Travolta? No, that was that was the benefit of working with uh, with Jason Blum's company, Blumhouse. You know, they had uh, mm-hmm. a casting director uh, in house that was there to sort of help, and um, and I think like Jason was meeting with 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 Travolta um, because like they had done a good movie, I think with. Uh, with Jennifer Lopez in it, like the boy next door. Right. Right. And that's uh, kind of a thing they, think, they made their model, proved their model. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I think everybody got rich off that movie <laughs> basically. So, yeah. uh, so yeah, yeah. So then I think John had heard about, you know, like, yeah, that success and was like, okay, well, you know, maybe I was, was that your first guys. movie with Blumhouse? Yes. And it's so, yeah, I'm looking here at the credits. So you're a, a capital P producer on that film. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so how, like when you have a Blumhouse and they've already made kind of the boy next door, the, the JLo film that did so well, like, is it hard to sell yourself? Like, aren't they like, don't they have their own producers? Like how, how does that? Yeah, sure. That well, I mean, it, I think it's like, yeah, it's, it's having incredibly loyal, uh, you know, you know, like having incredible loyalty, I think, you know, and then Ty kind of stood behind both myself and Jacob Dafty as his like, kind of partners in being the guys on the ground making the movie and so you know so that's 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 sort of like how we we were still there and we were able to make the movie because yeah at the end of the day it's like you know there could be all the producers in the world at the end of the day it's like who is on the ground that's making the movie mm-hmm. um i think that's important to, you know you know like the the the, the process of, of filmmaking and so did you make other movies with jacob jaffke was he one of the sva guys with you so so at the time while we were at sva jacob was at nyu and uh Jacob uh, was in, I was introduced to Jacob through like um, maybe like two other um, collaborators. We had Zeke Dunn, who was like a first AD on House of the Devil, um, and then and actually right before House of the Devil, I made a movie called. Um, so what happened? I, I, I guess I got to take it back just a little bit just to understand the, what had happened. So uh, so I go and produce Trigger Man that Larry finances um for yeah like 10k we didn't have a lot we just you know just get it done probably 10 days or something like that in wilmington delaware as soon as i got back larry goes oh great like you know uh i have another script for you to go make and that was graham resnick's movie so i went off and did that Mm -hmm. and this is all under the glass eye and so next you know i'm just you know and then i come back and graham resnick grew up with ty in wilmington delaware and he was at nyu and then Come back. He, he, Larry gives me another script that was I Sell the Dead. It was Glenn McQuaid's script, uh, which was much bigger ambitions. These three movies, this trilogy, they were called Scare Flicks, as uh, sort of like by Larry. They, I think, I mean, I got paid on these movies, not much, but definitely like, you know, you know saw something. And um, I think on I Sell the Dead was the movie I felt more like kind of driven to step up as a producer and get, 
you know, a notable cast. Uh, Glenn, the director, had worked as VFX supervisor on Larry's movie The Last Winter that starred Ron Perlman. So he was in Iceland with Larry and Ron and, like, built a little bit of rapport. So Glenn was able to, like, kind of slip the script to Ron to get, you know, him sort of, like, potentially consider it. And then for the role of Arthur Blake in the movie, uh, you know, I, I kind of sat Glenn down, like, who are you thinking? What are you envisioning? And um, and I was just thinking about how many times Ty has had us in his basement, his parents' basement, watching Lord of the Rings. And um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mary, the uh, Hobbit, played by Dominic Monaghan, uh, came to mind, but I was also recognizing. I was like, "Oh, is, is, are you a Lord of the Rings fan, or are you a Lost fan?" And I was a super Lost fan. I had my money on <laughs> yeah. Lost. You were, a yeah, Lost yes, fan. yes. Okay, so good. you win there. there. Yeah. yeah. So Lost was like, yeah, this is like 2006 going to 2007. Yes, yeah, so fun. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah. So then you know, I um, <laughs> I you know, I told Larry and Glenn, and I was like, oh, you know, we should get Dominic Monaghan. They're like, oh yeah, great, but like you know. Uh, they didn't think it was possible and how would I do it? And so, yeah, I just, uh, got his, uh, reps, his agent's number from IMDb pro. And then, uh, yeah, just kind of cold called him and pitched in the movie. And, uh, <laughs> did you have like a number in mind when you cold called him or did you what, just what, have, what, what do you mean a number? Like, uh, like an offer? Oh, no, not at all. I was just, my goal was just to like, let's just, you know, get, you know, let's just, I, like, you know, I knew enough to like, hey, you know, let's just find out if he's available and if he was open to reading. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I kind of pitched the concept of the project and they're like, you know, you know, and like, and, you know, it, it, to some extent it was cool that, you know, we ha- we were financed to, to some degree, um, but the budget grew later. Mm-hmm. But at the time, like, we were going to make the movie. Larry was already committed to financing the movie and, um, and you know, I just want to kind this- of like raise the stakes, yeah. Is this Larry guy making money from making movies or where, where is all this money coming from? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, he wasn't losing money on making movies at, at you know, at the time. Uh, and yeah, because home video was like, like, you know, thriving. You could make, you can make genre movies and sell them and they, you know, they, they made money back. And, and Larry is a big supporter of art, of the arts, you know, and, and artists. And that was his whole sort of vibe like running glass eye picks was like you know where you know it was like a community for you know independent artists you know and if you know if a little you know, a couple bucks could like help make your career happen then he was he was there to support um and 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 you know so you know i think you know we owe you know like our careers and everything to larry and you know he's such a godfather for for uh, this this sort of you know community of, of independent filmmakers you know, so, you know, I take us back to I Saw the Dead um, and that movie. And then after I Saw the Dead, um, well, right on it, that's where I, Jacob was introduced to me. So he came on to sort of help. And I think it was came on as a coordinator. And then mm-hmm. I thought Jacob's demeanor was great. And he just great attitude, positive vibes. And then it was like, all right, so I invite him. Well, he asked to be, he's like, oh, you know, I want to work with you on the next project. And, and that was House of the Devil. And so then I bring Jacob on and, you know, he ultimately is the, the production manager. And, uh, and I'm line producing it and, you know, producing it and, uh, you know, we get house of the devil made and that was, it was, it was tougher because at that point Ty had then went off to do cabin fever two and then had come mm-hmm. back and was waiting for the edit. And, you know, it, it was like, you know, the, the, you know, waiting was just not something that like, you know, Ty, you know, like really, uh, kind of enjoyed. So, um, 
And then finally we got money to go make House of the Devil. So it was like, all right, this is happening. And so, but he wanted, uh, he, he had come off of a movie that, you know, with a lot more resources than what we had on House of the Devil. So it was now our jobs to adjust to delivering, you know, more experienced people and, you know, an organization mm-hmm. um, because he's had it. He's had it. And even though we had left, he, he got a taste. Yeah. He was like, oh, what if uh, there was more than one monitor? So, yeah, I mean, it was interesting because he, he came in and um, like didn't like the locations that we had found. And so it was like, OK, you know, like now we have to like find, you know, new locations and, you know, which was like was- a change of speed, like before he'd be like, OK, we'll make this work. Yeah, well, it was before, I mean, before it was always like, oh, he had the location in mind. But now he is like, you know, Mm -hmm. I think he was coming in from LA and, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, landing in Connecticut. And, um, you know, while he had seen some of the, you know, like the location photos, you know, we just didn't have the, you know, the right level of like sort of like people at the time on the movie. And so, like, I think Jacob grabbed his roommate to come in who was a location person. And then, uh, he came on board to ha- kind of help, uh, you know, like, you know, manage the location in particular, like the house and house of the devil, which is what we end up with. Um, it was owned by, um, this woman who was like, you know, she had very specific needs. She was going through uh, a medical situation and, um, and like, we weren't quite, you know, I think like, you know, we didn't give her the script. We were sort of like, you know, the movie's called the house <laughs> kind of drop the, of the devil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to dig in on this a, just a tiny bit more because I think that we talk about on the show that that first time you kind of level up, you feel the bump and all of a sudden you need a producer. You know, maybe you've been doing your web series or your short films or your student films or whatever. And there's like just it can be like just one or two more people. And all of a sudden the logistics of a shoot become just that much more complicated. You have to get parking, you have to get catering, all of that stuff. And, and, and even from a director's perspective, even like the ambition, right? Think, all of a sudden, and you're like, yeah. oh, I guess we could get a permit. We don't have to steal this, you know, or right. we could call right. this actor's agent. We don't have to like ask who knows who, who knows who, just, you know? Right, right. And, and from a directing perspective, I think there is that shift where you you maybe take a hat off. All of a sudden, you're not doing quite as much producing as you used to. It used to be that you'd have to kind of just do everything and like you'd call cut and like in the back of your head, you'd be like, okay, well, I want to make sure that lunch is getting ready and this and, you know, like you're your own AD and all that stuff and you can kind of relax and then you have to retrain yourself to like run lines with an actor or like check in on lighting, you know, like you kind of have, you focus more on directing and less on producing. But I guess I hadn't thought about the way in which a director's demeanor or their expectations change once things bump up and how that affects their longtime collaborators and producers. Right. So like locations was a thing. What are some of the other things that like, as you felt your longtime collaborators leveling up, what were the things that you felt like you needed to do to kind of meet them at this level? Um, Yeah. I mean, I think it was like, you know, honestly, just like supporting his, his asks, you know, mm-hmm. that was, that was, I mean, it was, you know, like, instead of like, it was like, how do we, you know, it, you know, and I think this is the thing that, you know, that you, you know, in commercials, like it's certainly the case, like, you know, how do you not say no to the client, you know? And so, sure. Um, right. And so it became, it's like, yeah, it's like, okay, so we can't, if I can't, I don't want to say no, 
you know, but I will suggest mm-hmm. like, you know, what we can do, right? You got to come, you know, you know, come up with solutions to a problem um, that, that you may have. And, um, and so that was it. It was always being pragmatic and kind of listening to, you know, mm-hmm. what, what his concerns or issues were and, you know, and how do we remedy that? And like, you know, and as long as like, there was like that ongoing of like, here's the plan, you know, and, and he liked knowing what was going on. You know, he didn't want to be kept in the mm-hmm. dark, you know? And so, right. um, yeah. I, I love that attitude. Like, I mean, cause there are a lot of producers who I think they think their job is to get a project on time and on budget and to rein in the director. But like, I love kind of the attitude of like, my job is to not say no to the director. Like, how can I be creative and find ways? Really? <laughs> you like that? Well, yeah. I mean, I know it sounds obvious no, or, or like funny, but I, I have worked with producers yeah, that are like, is- Hey, like th- there's no way we can do that. Like, why are you even asking about that? And then I've worked with producers that are like, yeah, you want the sending cam? We'll figure out how to get that in there. Like, is there anything that we can combine to make this work? You know, like that they will act involve you in the finding the solutions or like they'll find the solution for you without you you know, without saying no. And there, there's something like very awesome about that. You know, and like to think of the director as your client, as a producer is pretty awesome. Cause I mean, Matt, you and I have a million times, the client has asked for something ridiculous, you know, and our yeah. instinct is to be like, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Stupid. But yeah. like, but we end up saying like, you know, well, what if we think about it this way, you know, find a way that it works for both of us. Yeah. I, I would, you know, and then I would, you know, probably, you know, preface it with sort of like, you know, how important is this to you? You know, it's like, it's like, you know, do we, you know, put resources or shift resources? I mean, that's the job of the line producer, right? It's like, you know, it's like we're um, shuffling the things around in order to kind of like, yeah, make, you know, prioritize what is important, you know, and, you know, in film and film, you know, it's like the director is, is leading the creative charge, right? And so, um, yeah, that was, you know, and then, and then I also felt what was became suddenly really important. It wasn't just about having a body there you know, like a crew mm-hmm. person. Right. But it, it was really mm-hmm. important to them to have the right vibe, like someone with the right demeanor that's going to mesh well because they're working in sort of, you know, fairly intimate conditions, you know, like when you're on set, you mm-hmm. know, um, talk a little bit more about that. I'm curious because I think there's like, there's nice people, there's friendly people. Right. But what, what was the X factor that made it made sense for that particular crew? Was, was it just, yeah, like, I think I think that's like I think that's like what we what we learned on 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 that movie, you know, and then how we kind of proceeded on on subsequent movies, right? Was like you know mm-hmm. that I think that like uh, um, was simply that it was like that you know that it wasn't just about finding somebody who's available to come in and do the job, um, but to 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 really like uh, check references and then also in, mm-hmm. in you know in certain cases you know like yeah like you know. Uh, introduce them to the director and uh and, and, oh, interesting. You know, and really see yeah. like auditioning yeah um and so you know and would you do that for literally every crew member was everyone kind of vetted that way um i mean like yes i mean not not everyone met with the director but i would mm-hmm. always i would always say you know and i remember you know it's like hey like if if you have a bad you know you're feeling weird about you know just say it just like let's not beat around the bush Let's not like delay mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's no time, you know, you know, yeah. and it's, it's not personal. It's just, you know, you know, personalities, you know, it's just like, just not, not clicking. Yeah. 
you know, and I, I like to this day now, and like now I'm producing and line producing. I am, you know, working in the commercial world as well. And, you know, it's a lot of trying to build the right vibe. Um, you know, mm-hmm. one that's like, that gets it, that understands. And, um, uh, and I think, I, I think, you know, I, I do pride myself on putting together like really, you know, like good crews and like that, that, you know, and that like our, that feels seen and respected. That's the other thing. It's like about communication, um, especially coming from the low budget stuff where, we didn't have the resources. I mean, that was the one thing that, you know, I would you know say, Hey, look, you know, the rate's not great, but like, here's the script, you know, this is why we're making this movie. We believe in this movie. Um, and, um, and also just, uh, I think like, uh, I think something I would say was like, Oh, if we don't pay you well, maybe we'll pay you on time. And, you know, we're even fast. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's, it's valuable. That's for real. It's so funny. I didn't realize you did commercials as well. I think Oren and I do a lot of commercials and it always blows my mind how the number that you're given to shoot for a day or two, certainly you could make a movie with that same number. But just for whatever reason, it never feels like you have enough money on a commercial, even though it's like, you're get you're ringing every bell and blowing every whistle you know what i mean yeah. like talk to me about the the gear shift between you know doing a commercial that's you know six figures a day you know versus that indie filmmaking where that that could literally be a week's worth of shooting or something like that you know like certainly now like i, I think the scale of your features is is much greater but like it wasn't that that long ago that you were still doing these these scrappy movies yeah um so like i think my experience in commercials didn't start until after i moved out to los angeles um you know Mm -hmm. just i just somehow was either too busy and this never really kind of like got that opportunity to do commercials um and uh and i didn't like i remember being um kind of like reached you know someone reached out to me about coming in to like kind of like help them with a live action shoot what they called it you know, it wasn't a commercial, it was a live action shoot. And I go, okay, what does that mean? Like, you know, like, do you know how to like put it together and like, you know, like do a bunch of like, yeah, of course I could do that. And so uh, I came in for the meeting, but I was reluctant because I just wrapped my first uh, series effort that Graham Resnick uh, wrote and directed. And it was like a eight episode series that we shot as a, like a little feature for Shudder mm-hmm. here in Los Angeles. So I just come off of that. That's in post-production. And it's sort of on like somewhat autopilot in terms of like, I, I got a couple of weeks to wait until like there's an edit to look at and like, you know, so in theory I am available, but I, you know, the, my mentality is like, Oh, I have so much rap to do, but like, you know, it will get done. And, you know, so, um, and I remember like, yeah, taking a look at this sort of like live action need and it was like, Oh, they needed to go get some epic shots, you know, on some like, you know, kind of beautiful location that like didn't seem like LA. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and then I was like, great. Okay. Well put the numbers on piece on paper, learn the AICP bid format. That was like number one. And then, um, mm-hmm. and then, uh, just leaned on my indie crew that just worked with me, you know, and sure. it was like, Hey, get them paid. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, look, I can yeah. like double, yeah. you know, certainly double, um, you know, uh, their, their rates, you know, you know, for like probably, you know, yeah, less time, you know? Um, and, and I was like, oh, okay, this is how, and I'm like, oh, no wonder, like, this is what, you know, and then <laughs> it also explains the, qual- like, you know, like, I was so grateful for the, the crew that we were able to pull together for Dead Wax, um, 
Um, but at the same time, like it was different than like, you know, than what we I'm used to working with in New York. There's sort of like a, mm-hmm. a New York hustle that I'm used to. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, maybe like when I came up, I mean, indie film was such a, a sort of a new thing and, and um, you know, whatever it was. And I was like, oh, and, like it was different on uh, working with crews out here. And that's because like I kind of yeah. realized it's like, yeah, because on any given day, they're offered like double, triple the rate on any number of commercials, union, non-union across, you know, um, the city. And so it's sort of like, oh, you know, they get paid a lot more to probably do a lot less. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. so that was like, it was different. It was like, okay, this is vibes. And I've, I've experienced in vibes cause I've gotten to make movies in different places. And so, you know, you just come to realize like, oh, this is the pace of this crew. Okay, cool. And then, you know, the conversation with the AD and DP and director is just sort of like, all right, so how do we, you know, how do we, you know, manage, you know, our expectations with the pace at which we move at, especially when something like smaller challenge budgets and we're still trying to push like, you know, 30 plus setups a day. Right. right. 30 plus a day. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a lot more than yeah. your average commercial. So. Uh. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so I feel like I know we're, we're kind of running out of time here. Like I, I'd love to kind of jump to like the final topic, which I'm sure Matt, you have the same question. Which is like, so now you're a producer and an executive producer, which I get, I, well, real quick, just in like two sentences, can you tell us the difference in your mind between an executive producer and a producer? Um, I think that, you know, the producer is more, is, is, is generally more like uh, involved on the day to day with the project. That, you know, that's the difference. Boots on the ground boots on, versus boots on the ground, yeah. in, in the office. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the executive producer has, has done something to help get this movie made. Yeah. Or yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause I see like you're sharing uh, your EP credit on a movie like Pearl with like Kid Cudi and like Sam Levinson, the creator of Euphoria, like kind of some interesting names here. I mean, like, so, you know, Pearl is a prequel to X. So Sam Levinson, uh, you know, is on board with his company um, and, you know, loves, you know, like basically big supporter of, of the movie and Ty and has that, you know, clout in the, in world along with you know um you know jacob jacob jaffke is producing along with kevin turin and harrison chris um and you know and then like the deal is made for one movie and then when it turns into two you know it's like everyone's on board i guess what the the question i wanted to ask is like so now you've had producer credits you've had ep credits you've worked on many successful movies small movies big movies medium movies uh a-list casts how do we get you to make our movie? Like, what are what are you interested in when you look at a script, when you are looking for the next project, when you decide either to be an EP and help a movie get made or be a producer and be really hands-on on a day-to-day basis? Like, what excites you? What can you tell our listeners of, like, how how they can make a movie with someone like you? Um, Aside well, I mean, from going yeah, to SVA like- with you. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I, you know, I will say that I'm like, I'm very like kind of filmmaker driven. I think like it's, it's, you know, the body of work at this point, you know, um, and, um, and then sort of like, you know, you know, I always say like something along the lines of like, you know, uh, oh, just to go back to that vibe, it's like, you know, let's, let's, you know, movie making movies is like, you know, it's, it's, it's taxing, right? It's, it's challenging work and it mm-hmm. takes a long time. So I, you know, let's make movies with people like you enjoy going to dinner with, you know, and I think that's like sort of a vibe, you know. Well, so that's interesting though. Okay, so filmmaker driven, yeah. right? That makes sense. Yeah. 
elab- there's there's got to be a little bit more to yeah, it than that absolutely. right because because certainly there's pl- I, i'm imagining i always think of like the guy driving home from set listening to the show who's like ah, i gotta get this feature off the ground you know i've been shooting for whatever um you know i've been camera operating and i really want to get my first feature going there's got to be what are the other elements what are the other i, I, I think recipes? like you know like you know a sort of a serious intent at, at doing it and, and and that's like a sort of a grounded approach you know like you know mm-hmm. like i think you know you could have all the ambition and and you know vision for you know like you know and we could remain optimistic for for the resources but uh, i think getting practical about what you know what you're able to execute within your own means and then I think, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and being organized, being able to present that in a sort of, you know, kind of like convincing way. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes, you know, sort of the difference, you know, because you got to like, you know, um, be able to answer like, why should this project be made? And, you know, and why are you the person that's like going to do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of just being realistic within your means i think is interesting because you know there is that film school damage of like well my first feature is going to be 15 million and then it'll i'll keep going from there and then also i think you're you've come from the experience of making successful micro budget films right because i think with the the other thing that we see is like oftentimes filmmakers will make something that costs 10 20 50 100 thousand dollars but just doesn't just doesn't have a home anywhere can't doesn't make sense in the marketplace even though they made it for super right yeah super cheap isn't necessarily like the the recipe for success um i mean i think Mm -hmm. i think um and there's you know and sadly there's like you know what you know you learn over the years is like you know i think the only reward for making something on a low budget is that you're more likely to then recoup but that's not always the case Mm -hmm. um i think you have to take a sort of a broader look at um the economics of, of, of movies and what's going on. And, you know, because we we're American, you know, we think a lot about, you know, you know, releases here, domestic releases here, but the reality of the industry is that, you know, you know, it's a global economy and, and you're looking mm-hmm. at releasing a movie that, that, that could perform elsewhere. And that, that ability for that movie to perform elsewhere is really important to the overall, you know, and I think if you're making a movie that has like, um, very relatable that transcends like language. I think that's like strong. And so like I happen to produce in a lot of genre and in, you know, in specifically horror. So in horror and thrillers. And so that can transcend, you know, a language barrier. And, um, and, and that's the thing that we found with our movies uh, is that, you know, they, they perform well, but they also perform well, like outside of the U S and that like was yeah. really important um, in the economics of it all. Yeah. A thing that I've been thinking about a lot, Peter, is the question like, does it make sense to make an indie film that's not a horror or thriller movie? Like, and I don't know truly if financially it does. Like, can you make a, a an indie rom-com that's going to pop enough to, you know, recoup and essentially only in, in a domestic marketplace? Do you know I, what I mean? I mean, you know, I wouldn't say like, I would never say like no to that. Um, but mm-hmm. I would say it's like, it depends, you know, like as your first feature, you know, you know, that's, you know, it's questionable, but you got to do it on the terms, sure. you know, on, on the terms that, you know, of the resources that you have, you know, it's like, 
That sounds like a no to me, Peter. Uh, <laughs> I, I like that, yeah. you know, most usually we get the answer that it depends, you know, which is like not an interesting answer. Sure. But I feel like you, you're giving us more of an answer, which I, I well, do yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, I mean, like, you know, how good is that script? If that script is really good, you know, then then certainly it, it deserves to be made. Um, but it's like, you know, the, the bigger challenge is how do you get people to read it? Do you feel like um, when you're looking at a project, you're thinking first about who's going to watch it or, or about like how it, like if you want to watch it, does that, does that make sense? Um, yeah. I mean, obviously if I'm interested, but I, I, you know, you know, I'm not like, I don't have to be the audience for the movie, you know, mm-hmm, like, right. um, uh, but you know, it's like if, but it's, it's, you know, I think it's, I think it's, you know, movie making, it's like, there's two, there's two approaches to it, you know, where, you know, are you making the movie for yourself? you know, you know, as the filmmaker, mm-hmm. or are you making it as a form of like some sort from level of entertainment for your audience, you know, for, and then, you know, can you define that audience? And like, you know, and I think if you're, you know, sort of honest in, in sort of whichever direction, right. For yourself or for an audience or like a combination of both. Um, I think that, uh, that, you know, you know, and you can execute it well, then I think there's an audience, you know, either you, if you made it for yourself, then it's about building, finding that audience that's going to appreciate your sensibilities, right? And if you're making for an audience, then it, it really just needs to be targeted for that audience. Yeah, just dial it yeah, in. Interesting. I'm recently, I've been, I think about that question a lot. And I've recently been really, I feel like I've kind of been like trying to make it for, make stuff for an audience. And I work mostly in commercial, so it's like, you know, a weird place to think about it. Um but I feel like I'm I'm making a major shift recently to like really not worrying about what the client, the agency, the what, audience, mm-hmm. the what's mm-hmm. popular on TikTok and just being like, this is what I think is awesome. And like, if you're on board, let's make it. And if you're not on board, then let's not make it, you know, like, right. um, yeah. like the, yeah. the stuff that you're making kind of against your instincts or passion, like is probably never going to be that good. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I think, I think that like being true yourself and, 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 you know, like, yeah, if you get excited about it, genuinely excited about it, that excitement generally can be very contagious. And that's what, you know, you know, we find a tie and I find with other filmmakers, it's like, oh, like, this is awesome. And you just try to find and build the, the team that's like, that's going to support that, uh, that, you know, and like, you know, and then I think, you know, I mean, I'm still, you know, uh, very romantic about filmmaking where it's, you know, it's like, I, I, you know, I, I, I work in commercials, you know, for, you know, for certain reasons. And then I'm still, Money. <laughs> still drawn Money. to making. Yeah. <laughs> no, but also, I yeah. mean, the schedule is amazing, right? You go shoot for yeah, a day or two yeah, or three yeah. and then you're back at home. Yeah. 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 And, and they are truly super fun, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot of upsides to commercials for yeah. sure, but yeah, it's, uh, it's rare that it's only two or three for me. It's still three weeks or something. Right. <laughs> oh, right. But on set, I mean, oh, right. Sh- yes. Shooting. shooting yeah, yes. Yeah. It's only a couple yeah. days. And then, you know, and the best part about commercials for me is like, here's the drives you know, and, uh, and the footage. And, oh, sure. You know, Cause I'm not yeah, yeah. dealing with post on, on, on it. And, yeah. Um, but you know, that, that, you know, that phrase, uh, you know, if you build it, they'll come I mean, you, you make a movie and you know, that you, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I think you just find an audience. Oh, are you down to hang out and endorse something in our unpaid endorsement segment? Uh, absolutely. Yes. Unpaid endorsements. <laughs> So what I will advocate for is people to go see this movie that I have nothing to do with. 
uh, but it's called Bad Axe, and it's a documentary that is uh, coming out from IFC Films. Um, it's from a filmmaker, David Siev, um, who basically documented uh, his family uh, in the town of Bad Axe, Michigan, um, as they dealt with the pandemic. Um, and what I, you know, why I'm drawn to the project is because David comes from a, like a mixed race family. Um, his father is Cambodian American, his mother's uh, Mexican American, and I'm Cambodian American. So I really connected with it. And um, uh, yeah, I want to support, uh, you know, indie films and, and also films, uh, you know, from, from filmmakers who are like, you know, underrepresented. So uh, that's my plug, Bad Axe. Well, so my unpaid endorsement, I have been writing to the soundtrack to uh, the Joe Para, the Adult Swim show that recently ended. It's like nice, mellow, ambient music. It's like melodic, but like still like very mellow. Where did you find me it? to sleep exactly? It's on Spotify. All three seasons um, of uh, Joe Para. Joe Para talks are, with you. Uh, are, Joe, Joe Para talks with you. Pardon me. Joe Para talks with you. That soundtrack, great to write to. If you're, if you, you know, don't write an action scene to it. Uh, so that is my unpaid endorsement. Uh, Kaplan, That's what awesome. you got? That's a good one. Um, I have a weird one. Um, I just have like an Instagram post. I've mentioned this guy before uh, on Instagram. He's at, at the Chris Doe, this guy named Chris Doe. He's just like a kind of business. Like he's a freelance uh, advisor. Like he's a designer, a graphic designer, but he just gives advice. Mm -hmm. You mean the future? Yes, the future. Um, but I, yeah. he, I think he has a separate account called the Chris Doe, which is where I saw this post. Um, and it's called how to identify the four types of clients. Um, and mm. basically he has the price buyer, the window shopper, the know-it-all and the value buyer. And I'm just going to spoil this because I, I, I love this stuff, you know, because as a freelancer, the worst thing is when someone's like, so how much is that going to cost you? You know, or like, what's your rate? And like, you want to be creative and you want to talk about like the project and all that stuff. but you know, you don't want to spend all this time and then realize that they're not going to pay you, you know? Um, and so he's really good at like just teaching people to ask for what they're worth up front and, um, mm -hmm. and to weed out the people that they shouldn't do business with. And so like he had like the price buyer is the person that's trying to find the lowest price. You know, the window shopper is someone that's undecisive. They're just trying to kind of feel out like how much does this cost? And they're talking to all these different people and, they're like, hey, show me, show me a proposal. Like, what would you do? You know, asking you to work for free, basically. The know-it-all is like the one that's like, you know, I know that's easy. I could do it myself, but I'm just hiring you because I'm like too important. And then the final one is the, is the value buyer. And they're the people that realize that time and, and your work is important and they will pay you for it. And he kind of has like the, the things you should say to the other people, you know, like for instance, um, the, the know-it-all, the person that says, you know, it's it's easy, but I'm just going to hire you to do it is like, he says you should disagree with them, you know, tell them, you know, it is easy, like anyone can do this. Like, why are you even spending money on this? Like, you should just do it yourself, you know, and he kind of has these like answers for all these people that that it's like very, it reminds me of like Socrates, you know, how he um, mm -hmm. there's this the scene in one of his books where he calls the server over and he like asks him enough questions to get the server to come up with the Pythagorean theorem on his own, you know, and. Like, I feel like Chris Doe is very into this, like, like, resp like negotiation where you're like teaching the buyer that what your value is, you know? Um, and I don't know. I just, I just love that stuff. So it's the Chris Doe. It's on Instagram. Just look for uh, the, how to identify the four types of clients. Um, and Doe is D-O with Chris Doe. 
Anyhow, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Peter, for talking to us. Um, Where can listeners uh, keep track of your work, find out more about you? Are you on Instagram? Yeah. Do you tweet for the, the next few weeks? Who knows? <laughs> you know. Uh, not too active on Twitter, to be honest. Uh, but yeah, definitely on IG. You just get me at Peter Polk. Uh, you know, and um, and I try to keep uh, you know the collection of you know movies I've made or whatever commercial stuff uh, I'm doing on, on my website, Peter Polk. And P E T E R P H O K dot com. That's right. With a silent H. Yeah. We are across all social media at Just Shunipod. We'd love to hear from you. Tweet at us, email us, mastodon us. Um, we uh, love hearing from you guys. Hive us, maybe? I don't know. We got to figure that out. You can find me on Instagram. I'm at O Kaplan. On Twitter, I'm at Smitey Pileg. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow across all social media. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Thanks, Noah. Welcome back. Uh, and our producer is Tyler Small. And you're listening to music by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.